How's everybody doing? It's good to see you. It's, uh, I am very excited to talk to you about what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, although I wasn't that excited when someone had the conversation with me, which is interesting. Uh, I was actually 12 years old, sitting in a Chinese restaurant and uh, minding my own business when my mom turned to me and said, we have five minutes, we should probably have the conversation about sex. And uh, I... You ever have one of those moments that you're just actually asking God for the earth to open up and swallow you whole? That was actually it. So it was right there in a Chinese restaurant in Brockton, Massachusetts, where uh, my mom gave me the sex talk while we were waiting for a poo-poo platter to come out. Um, and, uh, and man, it was uh, that, that 10 minute talk. It actually was five, supposed to be five minutes. It lasted 10 minutes until we got home. And uh, it was as awkward as can be. And needless to say, I had no appetite after that. Um, but, you know, maybe it wasn't the worst place to have the talk, because I will tell you this, that I was taught by friends, by movies, by TV, that sex was just, you know, kind of like fast food. You know, it was just something that you did. It was, um, you know, it was a physical act. It didn't mean much else. And yet what happened was this, is that I was wrong. And uh, the, the view that the culture around me had and that friends had and that I adopted was wrong and that God had a very, very different view about sex. And because people don't know what actually God has to say about sex, they just kind of make up what they think God has to say about sex. And because people are under the impression that God is like this buzzkill who wants to, you know, mess up people's fun, they think, you know, God's position on sex is like you shouldn't have sex unless you're going to procreate. And if you are going to procreate, you better not enjoy it because then, you know, lightning bolts and all that kind of stuff. And and that's just not the truth. Um, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we're in a series this morning uh, called Happily Ever After. And we, our tagline is that it happens, but not by accident. And the thing is this, is that um, the reason why we decided that we were going to talk about sex and we we're going to talk about intimacy and we we're going to talk about romance is because uh, this is a topic that ends relationships. This is what, a topic that causes people not to end happily ever after. Because when you think about it, there's three major reasons why people uh, get divorced and their relationships end. One is money, one is communication, and the other is sex. Now, if you're a guy, you only heard one problem in all of that. Money, we find money. Who needs money? Communication, who needs to talk? Sex, now we have a problem. And, uh, and so the, the, that's why we're going we're gonna to talk about sex. We're going to talk about romance. And like I said, if you're a guy, you, you think that those two words are synonymous. Uh, and they're not. They're, they're connected, but they're not synonymous. Um, and, and so and let me just tell you this. If you've never heard me talk on this subject before, um, and, and I know many of you haven't, uh, I'm not going to bring up any charts uh, or like I'm not going to like show you where the parts fit. All right. If you have any questions about that, I would encourage you to watch the Discovery Channel. And uh, they're probably doing some documentary on squirrels. And you can just kind of extrapolate from there as to how that works. Um, but uh, what I want to do before we get started or as we get started is I want to give you three foundational truths about sex that, that come from the Bible. So here's here's number one. If you're taking notes and I hope you have uh, the notes that we gave you, I hope you have the pen that we gave you. So let me give you these three uh, foundational truths. Number one is this, that God created sex. God created it. Think about it. There was a time that God was creating the heavens and the earth and that sex didn't exist and he created it. And um, I, I, this isn't in the Bible, but I have this idea as to how that all went about. I'm under the impression that God like had the idea and said to the angels, like whoever was there, like, you're going to have to check this out. These humans are going to love this. You know, you know, they're going to have to work. You know, they're going to love this. And and, um, and the thing is, this is that God, uh, God created it. God brought Adam to his wife, Eve. They were both naked. They weren't ashamed. Why? Because there, there is no. 
shame in the fact that God created it in the context of a marriage relationship. And that's the first verse that you have in there. That the man and his wife were both naked and they felt there no, no shame. There was no reason to. That which leads us to number two. And that is that sex is a gift for married couples. It's a gift for married couples. You see, inside of marriage, sex is a wonderful gift that's given to us by God. Outside of marriage, it has the power to destroy a relationship. That's why uh, in, in the book of Hebrews it says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer in all the sexually immoral. That's how seriously God takes it. But then here's the third one. The third one is this, is that sex is a physical and spiritual act. It's a physical and spiritual act. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul would write in the book of 1 Corinthians. He would say this. He would say there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much uh, spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. But since we want to become spiritually one with the Master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from other sins. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Didn't you see that you can't live as you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? Now, here's the thing that I want you to note as in, in that passage that the Apostle Paul talks about. And that is this. Now, in a very he compares two things that we would never put together. And that is that he compares sex with becoming a Christian. You say, well, now, how does that work? See, because here's what will happen sometimes if we have the wrong view of, of sex and, and all of that. And here's what it is. We'll say, well, sex is just an act. I can put a circle around the date, had sex on that date or this date or whatever date. And that's the end of it. And then, but at the same time, we have this understanding that it's, if it's just a physical act, it actually doesn't affect any other part of, of, of our lives. But here's what Paul says, that we talk about two becoming one, but then we want to become one. We want to be, get closer to God. And here's how, how he explains it. The day you became a Christian, if you're here and you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, here's what it is. The day you became a Christian and you prayed to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, did that day, that act, affect any other part of your life? And most of us would say, of course, it affected every part of my life. Well, he says, so he compares the two and he says in the same way, that's why sexual sin is different than any other type of sin, because this is a sin that we commit against our own bodies that now kind of spills over into every other part of our lives. And that's why this is so important. That's why the topic that we're going to talk about is so absolutely vital, because we need to know what God has to say, what God's design is for sex. His design for intimacy and for romance. And so what is romance? That's what we're going to spend our time talking about. Um, and that most guys don't see themselves as romantic. And so they kind of write off romance because it doesn't come naturally to them. And uh, for those of you that are married, let me just talk to you guys for a second. For those of you that are married, uh, guys, our wives want us, uh, they, you know, they want us to romance them. You know, they, they, girls, uh, their wives want to be romanced. They want to feel like they are uh, the most special woman on planet Earth. And that's why we're going to actually drill down on one portion of a story. In fact, this story, this book that, that we're going to look at from the scriptures uh, was one that for centuries, young Jewish boys weren't even able to read until they reached a certain age of maturity. 
And so it's the Song of Solomon. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. And Song of Solomon, if you're not aware, the reason why it's called uh, Song of Solomon, or in your Bible might be called Song of Songs, uh, is because uh, it's a series, the book is a series of songs. Um, it's, I guess, in some ways like a musical, um, because certain people are, are, are supposed to be singing certain parts. We're not, I won't be singing, um, but I, I'll be reading the parts. Um, and, and here's the thing that's important to look at, and we're going to look at one chapter in this book. Chapter four, that is so revealing. You might think, I mean, like, should I even be reading this because of what's happening? Because we're going to see Solomon, the biblical romantic, with his with his bride on their wedding night. And he is going to give us a picture of what romance really is. You see, and I believe that in these verses that we're going to read, we are going to learn what romance really is. And so what I want to do is give you five principles for romance that you can take from this story and apply to your life and your marriage today. And if you're not married, hold on to these. Keep these notes for the day that you are married because you need to know this stuff. Here's the first one, if you're taking note, is that romance is noticing the little things. It's noticing the little things. Now, here's, here's what I want you to know. We're going to read the verses in just a second. But what you need to note is this. Um, is, a friend of mine says it this way. Uh, when it comes to, like, uh, you know, men and women being aroused, uh, he says that men are like microwaves. You just push a button and they're ready to go. Right. And women are a little more like crockpots. Takes them a little while to kind of get heated up. Um, and, and that's probably the case. And, and I am trying to figure how do I explain this? Maybe this kind of explains it a little better. Um, that's how men get aroused. This is how women get aroused. It kind of helps uh, a little bit there. Um, but here's the thing. Now, the thing that we have to know is that a, a woman is aroused long before she gets to the bedroom with a guy. It's like pretty much I'm ready, you know, any any time. But with a woman, it's different. And that's what we're going to see starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, Song of Solomon. This is what we read. This is Solomon speaking. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil, and your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. And your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. And your mouth is lovely. And the temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, if you pause there and, and give me your attention, I mentioned the first thing is that romance is noticing the little things. Now, I want you to think about this because these are the words that he decides to use for his wife on their wedding night. Uh, now, what he's doing is he's telling her that that she is beautiful and he's being very descriptive about it. You see, what your wife does not want to hear is when she says, well, you guys are going to go out and she gets dressed. Maybe she got dressed for church this morning. She's like, how do I look? And you go, you look nice. You know, nice. Your grandma looks nice when she comes over. All right. How does she look? No, honey, you look beautiful. You look beautiful. You know, I, you, you get your hair cut. I, I, I noticed that. Uh, and, and that's why when, when a woman changes something about her appearance, she won't tell you that because she wants you to notice. And you're thinking, like, I'm not really that observant. Like once I got in my car and it was on fire and I never even noticed. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, she's still not going to tell you. She wants you to notice because it's important to them that you notice. you cut your hair. And what about it? That's great. Oh, you cut your hair. No, 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 that's not enough. What you cut your hair. Do you like it? What about it? Oh, I really like how you cut it. It's. I like how it's shaped. I like how it goes around your face. I, whatever it is that, that it is. And that, so he talks, about, um, he, he talks about her, but I want you to see how specific he is. 
But he talks about her hair and he says that they're like the goats of Gilead. Now, mind you, I will tell you this, comparing your wife to a goat in most cases is not going to go well. All right. But but all right, that's not going to work in your favor. But here's the thing is that the goats of Gilead of this area in Israel were known for their long, black, flowing hair. And so what he's telling her is that her hair, he loves how her hair is long and it's dark and it's flowing. And that's the thing that, he, that he's telling her. Then he says this, uh, that he says that her teeth are like sheep and none are missing. Right. Like if you said this is like a, a prime example of like if you can't find anything to compliment someone about like, honey, I love the fact you have all your teeth. Right now, that's important. You know, now this is the thing is that you got to understand in this culture, in this culture, you know, like Listerine and Crest and Aquafresh, they hadn't been invented yet. So the cavity creeps were running about, you know, running amok, to say the least. So you had people losing teeth and all that. But here's what he says to her, that they're not just like sheep, but they're like sheep who had just been recently washed. Like, honey, you look like you just brushed your teeth. There's no tartar buildup. There's no plaque. You've been using those Crest white strips, haven't you? They look great. They, your teeth look great. But you know what he's telling her? He's telling her that she has a beautiful smile. And then... He says this, then he says this, he says, the temples behind your veil are like pomegranates. I don't know if you ever commented on your wife's temples before. Right? Honey, those are quality temples you got. Right? I don't know if you've ever said anything to your wife's temples, but he says to her, but I want you to see what he's doing. He's being descriptive about her. He's talking about how he loves her face. He starts with the, from the top of her head with her hair, and now he's working his way down. That he finds her beautiful, and he says that to her before he even touches her. That's why I said that romance is noticing the little things. Guys, we've got to get this. We've got to get this. Listen, your wife does not want to be attacked. I mean, that's probably the downside of the Discovery Channel, Right? Is that, well, you know, the cheetah just, you pound, well, you're not a cheetah. All right. Um, and uh, and so here's the thing that, that, that you want to note is that he, he she she doesn't want to be attacked. She wants to be approached like you found something precious, like you found something beautiful, like you found something of value. And so you want listen, you want to make love to your wife. You learn to talk to her this way. And listen, um, a few months ago, I spoke at a men's conference. And I was asked to speak on the subject of romance, and so I spoke some of the stuff that I'm sharing with you. And I kind of walked through this, this list of the things that Solomon says. And a guy says to me, he says, Bob, nobody talks that way. And I said, are you sure? And he says, no, nobody talks that way. And I said, then here's your homework. Go buy a John Mayer CD. And uh, you know what you'll find? A guy who talks that way. That's why girls love John Mayer. That's why I hate John Mayer. You know, uh, it's it, because, I mean, he just, he talks that way, right? Your body is a wonderland. Not your body's a carnival. Not your body's like Epcot Center, you know, right? Uh, he says your body's a wonderland, and he kind of goes into this whole thing, right? And that's the thing that we need to know, is that, you know, and, and the thing that we have to understand is that, you know, if you haven't known, men or women are different. It just does a newsflash. Um, but listen, guys get turned on visually. That's why in your house, I can promise you, there's no budgetary restraint on lingerie. You know, you, honey, you buy whatever you want. You don't worry about it. Why? Because you're dying to find out what Victoria's Secret actually is. Uh, you know, reveal the secret. What is it? You know, and uh, listen, and, and by, by the way, I want to tell you, if she hasn't told you, she doesn't wear it because it's like super comfortable. Um, if, if you're not aware, she wears it because she knows that it, that it arouses you. And women are aroused uh, in, in, in a different way. Your wife is aroused when you show interest in her. She's aroused when you help with the dishes, when you ask about her day, when you're a good dad, when you bathe the kids and you get them ready for bed and, and you help with their homework and all that stuff. All of that is what makes a woman desire you. 
Makes, you, makes your wife desire you. And so it's noticing the little things. That's the first part of romance. Here's the second part of romance, starting in verse 5. Now, this is where it gets a little more tricky. Uh, he says this. He says, your two breasts. Here we go. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. You are my you are all fair, my love. There is and there is no spot in you. If you pause there and give me your attention, uh, there's several things that are really, really important that I want to share uh, with you in, in, in reference to this. But um, you got Here's the here's the second point. If you're taking note, number two is, is that romance is tender and passionate. It's tender and passionate. Now, I want you to understand the context here. You've got a godly woman, right, who has saved herself for marriage. And then now she's in, in this passage, she's undressing for her husband for the very first time. This is their wedding night. They're consummating their marriage. And then he, he's describing her before he even touches her. He's describing her and speaking about her beauty. And then he tells her that your 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 breasts are like two fawns, which is, you know, a young deer. So he says, you know, imagine, you know, you know, she's undressing for her husband and she call he calls her breasts a small, furry woodland animal. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and, and so now what what is it that, that she's saying? Now, why isn't it that the next verse says, and so she slapped her husband, you know, because like, how come that's not the case? Now, here's the thing. Um, once again, remember, this is eleven hundred B.C. This is uh, or actually about a thousand B.C. or so. This is being uh, this is written. And so here's the thing that's important to note. The thing that's important to note is that you don't have to be a hunter to understand this concept. I'm not a hunter. I consider myself a great indoorsman. All right. And so um, if, if you don't have to be a hunter to understand this. But if you were hunting deer and you saw one, would you be aggressive and start yelling and screaming to try to catch one? Or would you be slow and gentle and patient in your approach? That's the thing that he's saying to her. As he sees her, he's telling her that he's going to be slow and patient and gentle and that he's going to touch her in that way, not like he's tuning a radio. All right. Um, thank you. For, there's like seven people who got that joke. Um, someone will explain it to you later. If not Discovery Channel, they'll have it. Um, but then he says this, and this is the part that I want to drill down on a little bit more. But then he says these words to her. He says, this is in verse seven. He says, you are fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Now, what is that? See, now Solomon is using a different kind of language here. He's using religious language. He's using temple language. You see, in that time when the temple was still standing, when someone was going to make a sacrifice to God, they would bring a lamb and the lamb would be offered to God as a sacrifice for someone's sins. And what would take place is, is that the lamb would have to be without spot or without blemish. It would have to be perfect to be worthy to be sacrificed. And so the thing that he notes is this. And this is the thing that's really important. As he says to her, you are without spot. He's saying to her that you, as she undresses for him, she says you, he says you are perfect. Why? Because she becomes his standard of beauty. Now, guys, this is really important to know. I'm going to talk to the guys for just a minute because this is really important. Guys, you have to understand this about your wife. And this is most most women in general, is that most women have insecurities about their body. They have insecurities about their body. And listen, and, and, and if you're married to a woman, you need to affirm her because women feel like they're competing with women out there that aren't even real. 
I mean, think about it. You know, there's a standard that society sets as to what a woman should look like and what is quote-unquote normal. And so if you don't fall into the quote-unquote normal, then what happens is, is that you start, a woman starts feeling like I've got to somehow compete with that. And so, and most of the women that they're competing with aren't even real. Right? It's mostly Photoshop anyway. And so, and, and, and sometimes they can't help but compare themselves. But here's the thing that we have to remind them is, is listen, is that it was to tell her, listen, you are my standard of beauty. You, you are the most beautiful woman that I've ever seen ever, I've ever known. And you are the standard of beauty for me. Listen, guys, that's why pornography is so destructive. It's so destructive because it creates an illusion that no one can live up to. And not only that, it creates lust for someone other than your spouse and a desiring for someone other than your spouse. And it becomes detrimental and it erodes the very foundation of your relationship because now you go from her, your wife, being the standard of beauty to someone else being the standard of beauty. And that's why he says to her that she's perfect and that she is the standard of beauty, that all women should be compared to this one, to, to this one that God has given to him. He goes on in verse 8. I want to read you just verse 8 because this is important. Here's what he says. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, and with me, uh, with me from Lebanon. Look at the, town, the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon. From the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what is it that he's saying to her? He's telling her to come from these places. The third point is this, is that romance is built on trust. It's built on trust. You see, Amana, Sinir, and Hermon are all mountains in Israel that are found. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find them many times mentioned. They're found in the northern area of Israel. It's where the lions made their lairs, and so it was a very dangerous place to go. And the thing that he's saying to her, he's saying that he's not going to take her to a place where she needs to worry for her life or worry for her safety, but instead he's going to love her in a way that she wants to be loved. You see, that's really what trust is all about, is knowing that the other person that I'm that, 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 that you're with, the person that you're married to, has your best interest and is going to put you first before themselves. You see, if, if she thinks that really it's all about you, if he thinks that it's all that it's that it's all about you, then what's going to happen is that you're never going to be able to reach a, a place of totally trusting the other person. And this is true in every area of life. And that's why I mentioned in the beginning that it's like that, that sex is not just a, a physical act that doesn't affect every other part of your life. But instead, every other part of your life affects your sex life as a married couple and your sex life affects every other part of your life. It's just the way that it works. It's not just an action. It's an expression. And so everything in every other part of your marriage is either leading to lovemaking or is becoming a barrier in a, in a roadblock to it. And that's and I'm telling you, as guys, we sometimes have a difficult time with this because we believe that sex is kind of the end all right. That sex can end any fight. And yet, for, for, on the other side of the table, you know, for women, it's, it's that, you know, a fight erases sex because all of these things are connected. And that's why what we have to do is we have to do the things that build trust in a relationship. I, I, t- I tell guys this, and, and, and they laugh. I say, do you want a great sex life? And they say yes, and I say, balance your checkbook. Don't make your wife do it. They say, so ba- I'll have a great sex life if I balance my checkbook. Give me that calculator, you know. Uh, you know, well, what it, I'm telling you, if you do, you do simple, simple things like that, you balance a checkbook, something breaks in the house, you, you take care of it, 
You know, you mow the lawn so the place doesn't look like it's abandoned. Um, and, uh, you know, you do, do things like that. You know what it does? It's not that you're doing it because, oh, you know, I'm going to get lucky. It's, it, that's not the reason why you're doing it. You're doing it because it's something that's done out of love. And it's something that's done because you're, what you're seeking to do is build trust and deepen your relationship as you put the other person before yourself. I mean, I've shared this for uh, if you've been around here for a while, I've shared this for a while. But like, I don't let my wife take out the garbage in my house. Why? Because she's my wife. I mean, I take out the garbage. Why? It's not that she's like incapable of pushing the can from the garage to, to the front, you know, to, 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 the, to the curb. She's capable, but I don't want her to do that. I don't remember. It's probably been at least five years since the last time my wife has put gas in her own car. Why is that? Well, I simply do it because I just want it to be an expression of love. I don't want her to have to worry about it. So every few days, I'll take a peek in the car, see how much gas there is. And if she needs gas, I know where she's going that day. Uh, if she says she's going to be driving somewhere, I'll make sure. I'll just take 10 minutes and just go out of my way and do it. And here's what it does. It builds trust in the relationship. I'm telling you, you build trust in the relationship and romance and intimacy is the natural outflow of those things. Well, here's where he moves on in verse 9. Look at what he says. This is so important. He says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, oh, my spouse, drip as honeycomb and honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. If you pause there, uh, let me stop you there for a moment. And tell you this, and this is, the, this is point number four, and that is that romance is sensual. It's sensual. Now, I want you to notice that what he, now he's been talking about her, right? But now he's getting closer to her because now he, he can begin to smell her, right? And the thing that he does, he talks about just how good she smells. You know what I found amazing? Um, and maybe this is studies show that women smell better than men. Actually, there's no study. I've just, just realized that based on my life is that women smell better than men. You can tell when you walk into a house if a woman lives there. Why? Because you walk in and it's like, oh, this smells nice. Potpourri, spices, and all this. You, you walk into a house that a woman doesn't live and you go, chalupa. You know, <laughs> smells like Taco Bell in here. You know, well, why is that? It's just, it is what it is. Why? Because, and if you're not, you know, guys, smell yourself, smell your wife. I can promise you she smells better. Right, it's just it's just the way that it is. And so he smells says that, that she smells good, but I want you to notice something else that I think is really important. He says this to her twice in those verses, he says, How fair are you, my sister, my spouse? Now why would he say that? And it's like, was this written in West Virginia? Uh that where that actually happens? Uh no. I'm never gonna get asked to speak in West Virginia, I can promise you that. Uh, but here's here's the thing that's really important. He says her that because Every relationship, every godly relationship has a duality to it. Every godly relationship has the aspect where it's not, we're not just husband and wife, but we're brother and sister in our relationship with God. In my relationship with my wife, not only are we spouse and husband and wife, but she, my wife is my sister in Christ. She's, my, she's the person that I have relationship with God with. And the very foundation of our marriage is our service and commitment and worship of God. And everything else now becomes an outflow of that. And that's, listen, what a great marriage is built on. 
And a great marriage that has intimacy and a great marriage that has all the other things thrown in that you desire to have, it's built on the fact that we have common faith and that we have a common God that we worship and that we follow and that we serve and that we obey His commands and then we experience the blessing of those commands in our lives. And that's why. That's why all these other things, as He gets closer to her, even as He begins to touch her, here's the thing that He says. It's not just that he's taking her as my wife. He says, you're my sister and my spouse. That there is this common understanding that there is something that's holy that's happening here. There's something that's right that's happening here. There's something that that is God-ordained that's happening here within the context of our marriage relationship. And And that's why as he kisses her, he says that milk and honey are under your tongue. By the way, uh, if you notice this, the French did not invent, invent the French kiss, if you're not aware. Uh, they, it predates. It shouldn't be called the French kiss. It should be called the, the Bible kiss because it happens, uh, it happens long before. But here's the thing. This is the fulfillment of the thing that she dreamed about. Right? This is what she says at the beginning when she first meets this one that she's going to marry. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. So she's been dreaming about this day. Guys, I want to tell you this, and let me break the news to you. If you might say, man, well, I'm no Romeo, guess what? You married Juliet. And so she wants to be romance. Now, I'm going to talk to the guys for just a minute. Um, but, guys, let me just tell you a couple things here. Um, uh, like flowers on Valentine's Day. That's just not going to cut it. You know, um, like you say, well, no, I bought my wife. Do you buy your wife flowers? Yeah, I bought her a couple, two weeks into February. I bought her something. It's November, you know, or whatever date it is. What about that? You know, because here's why it doesn't count. Because even loser husbands buy flowers on Valentine's Day. Why? Because they're selling them everywhere. And, 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 but here's what you've got to do. You've got to go above and beyond that. You, you want to know what great husbands do? Let me just, can I give you this? Great husbands act like every day is Valentine's Day. That's what they do. They act like every day is Valentine's Day. And you just decide. You pick out some dates in the calendar that you're just going to buy your wife some flowers. And I'm, you say, well, that's just simple. Yes, it's simple, but it goes such a long way. Uh, and so, so what do you do? And here's what you do. By the way, let me just tell you this, guys. Your wife likes flowers other than roses. Right? She does. Because, and I know that's what the guy on the street corner sells. Because you bought some flowers, a bottle of water, and some you on the way home. And you uh, just, just ah, throw the flowers. You threw them in for two bucks. Why not? And uh, now listen. <laughs> now listen. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, is that you've got to find out what, you, what flowers your wife likes. And you've got to write those down. I remember when, uh, because here's what the Bible says. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's in 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives according to understanding. And what we shared is, and I told you this, I said, my goal is to become, to get a Ph.D. in, in, in cariology. Right? I want to understand, I want to know my wife better than I know anyone else on this planet. And so here's the thing that's, that's, that's important. The thing that's, that's important to note is you find out what flowers she likes. And so you guys are walking around somewhere and she says, oh, those flowers are beautiful. Oh, what, what, what's the name? they are beautiful. What's the name of those? Oh, those are called, uh, you know, whatever they are. And you go, oh, okay, hang on. You write a little note to yourself and then uh, you go, then you stop at the florist, you go online and you say, I would like the, I don't even know, how, how, do, I, how do you pronounce that? I want to buy a bunch of those. All right, can I get those? And then you come home with those and it's like, oh. You remembered. How did you know? You're the greatest ever. And you're like, yes, I am. I really am. And, and I'm telling you, that's, that's, that's the thing. Because you know what it communicates? It communicates, I'm listening, and what matters to you matters to me. 
Guys, that's why I'm telling you, you want to take your wife out, you do some research, and you just you find the nice place. Um, and, and you go there, and you, you take her to a place that's like way more expensive than you can afford, and, and, and you go there. Like, I remember one of the first times that I took my wife out. Uh, we were dating, at the, uh, we were, had just been dating for about two months, and um, I, I took her to this restaurant that's on Fort Lauderdale Beach, and um, I, I, I drove her there, and I'm not even kidding, the, uh, like the bill to the dinner cost more than the car we drove in, all right? Like, I actually valeted the car, because that's all, your only option. And the guy, valet guy looked at me like, is this car going to make it to the parking lot? And I'm like, your guess is as good as mine. Here are the keys. And, uh, you know, the 25-cent tip is coming if you take care of that. Uh, you know, and, uh, but, here, but here's the thing that happens. Uh, but here's the thing, and I'm telling you that it's like, you know, she thought it was amazing. And, and we'll do that to get our spouse. But let me just tell, give you the, the other thing is this. Now, if you want to keep your spouse, you've got to keep doing the same things. Because what you did together is what you need to do to keep her, to show her that, listen, she is your standard of beauty and the one that you care about more than anything else. Because somehow we start from, man, I'll, I'll take you wherever you want because I'm, I'm, I'm falling in love. But now staying in love is something very different where now it's like we're going to go out. I'm going to take you out. It's our anniversary. Where are we going? We're going to Chili's tonight, baby. Chili's. Oh, I'm taking you. This is a really nice arch. It's actually two arches. They're golden. We're going there. You know, you know, honey, where you're going to eat like, you know, I only take you to places that royalty eat. So you take your pick, Burger King or Dairy Queen, wherever you want, you know. And so, you know, now we can do that. But here's what you want to do. You do the research. You talk to friends. You talk to people that like have gainful employment and go out places. And, and you ask them, say, hey, where, when you want to go out someplace nice with your wife, where do you take her? Oh, I take her to this place. It's probably some place you may have never heard of. And you don't even tell her. But you tell her, honey, get dressed because we're going out. And you go out and uh, you don't even tell her until you get there. And I'm telling you, you do that. And along the way, you tell her that she's beautiful and that she's sexy and that you love her and that she's the, the standard of beauty in your life. I'm promising you guys, you do this. Lovemaking is going to be the least of your problems. Um, but once again, it's built on trust. It's something that's sensual, but look at number, this is the last one. I want, I want to read these verses to you before I give you the fifth one. Here's what it says. He says, a garden enclosed, this is verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. He says it again. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchid of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, a fragrant henna and spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all the chief spices, a fountain of garden, a well of living waters in the streams of Lebanon. Now, this has all been Solomon talking. Now, listen to what she says after he says all of this. Now, he says all of this, and this is what she says. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. And let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Here's, here's the last point is that number five, romance is holy. It's holy. What is he saying in, in verse 12? He says that she was a garden that was shut. She was a fountain that was sealed. What is, that, what is, she, what is he saying there? It's very picturesque language saying, you saved yourself for me. And that they had waited until they were married uh, to, 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 to be together, to be intimate. And that's what made that night special and holy and what made their relationship special and holy. And by the way, that word holy, what does it mean? We, like, what, what, is, what exactly does that mean? The word holy simply means this. 
Uh, it's a Greek word that means to set apart for a special purpose. And so that's all that they're saying is you set something apart for a special purpose. That makes it that makes it holy. And that's what they did. They set themselves apart for the special purpose of not being together, of not having sex, of not being intimate with someone until they entered into the covenant relationship of marriage. Because singles, when you, when you get married, I mean, do you want that that night and that person to be special? I mean, do you want it to be special or, or when you get married, is it going to be business as usual? You see, the, the, the Solomon's wife, before she gets married, in chapter 2, verse 7, and in chapter 3, verse 5 of Song of Solomon, she says this. She says, do not awaken love until it's time. So it's not that uh, it wasn't a desire, but she says, we're going to wait, we're going to wait, we're going to wait until it's the right time, until it's God's time. And I want you to notice, I want you to see verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, what Solomon says in, the, in response to this. He says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Nine times he says my. Why? Because they have entered into a covenant relationship that is marriage. And because of that, they realize that this relationship, this intimacy that we're experiencing is exclusive between us. But here's the last thing I want to share with you, the last part of chapter 5, verse 1. And here's, here's what I want, want to tell you. This is the thing that's so important. Is that scholars debate as to who it is that's going to speak here. And uh, some say that it's actually the, 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 the friends of the bride and groom that are going to speak. And we would hope it's not them because you would think that they're not there while this is all going on. Like, hey, what are you guys doing here? Oh, we're just here watching because our chorus part's coming up. I'm like, hey, why don't you guys hang out and we'll call you in the morning. Um, but so who is it that's going to speak in this part? And so some scholars say it's the friends of um, the bride and the groom, but other scholars say that it's the one place in this book that God himself speaks. And here's what he says. And he says, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. That, in that, that at this moment where they consummate their relationship, that here's what God says. That God says that this, this thing that, that you're doing within the context of marriage, that it is good, that it is right. And that it is holy. You see, listen, God created sex and he created it to be something amazing to be experienced between a husband and a wife. And, and listen, God desires for lovemaking between a married couple to be amazing, to be fantastic. But listen, we have to do it his way. And l- let me tell you why. And sometimes people ask, like, why does God have all this stuff to say about marriage and all this stuff to say about romance and intimacy in the Bible in the first place? And here's why. is because part of one of the ways that God describes our relationship with him is by describing a marriage relationship. It's a covenant relationship, much like marriage is a covenant relationship. And when we come to know God and ask Jesus to come into our lives, we enter into a covenant relationship. Here's how the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, here's how he would put it. He'd say, for this reason, a man will leave father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, this is where a great marriage begins. It begins in the place where you invite Jesus to come into your life if you never have. You invite him to forgive you of everything that you've done. And let me tell you something, even when it comes to the subject of sex and intimacy and all that, um, it could be that you say, you know what, Bob, I haven't done it this way. And I have some things that honestly I'm very ashamed of. 
Listen, can I just share something with you? That there is nothing that you've done that could possibly cause God to turn you away. In fact, the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and that there's no one who calls upon him that he won't actually, that he won't accept. That listen, whatever mistake you may have made, whatever thing that has happened, whatever sin you may have committed, listen, Jesus died for that too. And yet what he does is he offers us this open invitation to come to him, to experience life and experience forgiveness and experience peace and experience a fresh start if we're willing to. Because that's where a great marriage begins. It begins when we invite Him into our lives. And now, just like Solomon said, my sister, my spouse. We now have that kind of relationship as the basis of which to build a marriage upon. Because that's how happily ever after happens. Let's pray together. And God, we want to thank you for that very fact that you offer to us. You offer us forgiveness and peace and life. You offer us a standard by which to have the right relationship. But that begins with the right relationship with you. And listen, uh, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to take a moment. If, you're, if you want to make that decision this morning, and you want to invite Jesus to come into your life to forgive you uh, of everything that's happened in your past, to give you a fresh start in the present. And to give you a future and a hope that leads to his kingdom. And eternity with him. I just want to give you an opportunity right now to just ask God to come into your life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you just want to um, invite God into your life and ask Jesus to forgive you, I'm just asking you to repeat this prayer with me. It's not a magic formula or anything like that. It's, um, it might be my words, but I pray that it expresses your heart to God. So if you're ready, just say, dear God. I open my heart and I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. God, I want to know you. And I want to walk with you. Starting right now. In Jesus' name. Amen.